Welcome to the podcast for St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School Sherman Center that's in Random Lake, Wisconsin, north of Milwaukee and south of Sheboygan. We're pleased to share with you recent sermons and Bible classes from our congregation. We welcome you to join us for Divine Service Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. We have Bible classes currently offered at 8.15 a.m. on Sunday. Join us to receive the Lord's Word and His gifts. Okay, it's loading here. Uh, did you get the sheet? It should say chapter 6, 52 to 58 on the top. Um, although I said we, we wanted to talk about living bread from last week, which is 41 to 51. So if you have last week's sheet, I did put them back there, but if you don't have them, that's okay. And hopefully Mr. Patrick, who wants to participate in class himself, will, uh, oh look, you get a little shadow of the cross on on there. All right, so I'm almost there. Just need to get that up on the screen. Connect to church. Ooh, 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 ooh. And oh. uh, yeah. touchy, touchy. There we go. All right. So last week I said we'd talk about living bread. So that starts in about verse forty-seven. All right. So let's let's back up and we'll just jump right in um, and review where we left off. So verse forty-seven. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. Thank you, Luke. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I give, I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. All right, so it starts truly, truly, and, and I told you that in Greek, that's amen, amen, right? So it's this emphatic kind of statement. And sometimes it's a transition. Here it's not. Here he's, he's going to restate what he's already said, but say it more emphatically again, all right? The previous statement being verses like 31 um, up to 47. So to eat the manna. Now, <clears throat> sometimes the Old Testament picture and the New Testament picture are alike. That one gives, like looking upon the serpent, right? Back in chapter 3, if you looked on the serpent on the pole, you lived, right? Which is like Jesus. You look upon Jesus, dead upon the cross, you receive life. But the quality of the life is different, right? Like with the serpent on the pole, it takes away what death that came by this snake bite, right? Whereas you look at, at, upon Christ on the cross, it takes away sin, and with that, death, and gives eternal life, not just uh, life, temporary life, but actually eternal life, right? Same thing happens here with the bread, although it's even more dramatic, right? Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died, right? And that bread was actually dead bread, <laughs> that makes sense. Um, I suppose a sourdough bread isn't quite as dead as a it is once you bake it, though, right? 
even if it was alive with the yeast or, in that case, uh, whatever's fermenting it, sourdough, all the airborne things, right? You know about this, right? That you, a sourdough in different parts of even of your own house is going to taste different. Do you know that? Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's uh, famous chefs um, who are into, like, fermenting and pickling and sourdough and that kind of thing. And they've carried their cultures forward from building to building. Uh, the one chef, I can't remember his name, he actually, he's in like San Francisco now, but he was in Philadelphia and all of his cultures like really came to life in Philadelphia in an old house that he converted into a restaurant, but he used the basement. So he brought all those cultures in and now he's taking those cultures with him. Anyway, uh, that's living bread until you bake it and then it's dead, right? This bread, even, even as it's been baked, so to speak, dead, it is alive. Actually, it gives life, and it is living. It's a living bread. So there's, the contrast is, is even more dramatic than it was like with the serpent on the pole, right? And that whoever eats of this bread will live forever. Right? So it doesn't just give um, temporal, as we say, <laughs> or temporary life, um, life. It gives eternal life, right? It feeds you into eternity or for eternity, which means it has a very different quality to it. Uh, so the, the Old Testament manna was a, as I said on my sheet from last week, a shadow and preliminary image of Jesus himself as the I am. Okay, two, two variants here, actually, that are worth noting. One, your fathers, or our fathers, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died, right? I am the living bread that can die. If, if anyone eats this bread, right? So now there's, so you see the contrast there? The manna was given for your fathers, so it was a limited subset of, of humanity, right? It was the, the wilderness, the pilgrims in the wilderness, the, the nation of Israel, right? The Hebrews. But now, the bread that Jesus gives is not just for the Hebrews, but it's for the whole world, right? Um, so that, that's a really helpful contrast because, you know, you see that expansion that God elects or chooses a particular people um, to bring about salvation for all people. Uh, so sometimes, I may actually even say something about this in the sermon. Just briefly, I throw it out, but, you know, there's the psalm, you know, about being a chosen nation, God's own people. It's like, well, that's you, right? And, and I don't even translate it as nation. I just say God's people. You're God's people. He's chosen you, right? Uh, it isn't to say that the people in the Old Testament were God's people, too. And then, of course, this is all prefigured. It's not on your sheet, but it's all prefigured by the way that Jesus himself, in his own lineage, brings in unbelieving, for, for lack of a better word, foreigners. So you have, hmm, who? I, was, I don't want to spoil it. I've gone over this so many times with the kids, they probably know by heart. Rahab, who is a foreign prostitute of all people, right, is one of Jesus' grandmothers. That's interesting. Ruth, as well. We think Ruth, oh, that's such a cute story. Mm, the subtext of, of the story of Ruth um, is a little bit more scandalous than that, actually. Bathsheba, so Uriah's wife, Uriah the Hittite. <laughs> yeah, we mentioned Rahab, right? Rahab, Uriah. And Tamar, where was she from? I don't remember. It doesn't, it's not coming to me right away. Was that Judah's wife? Judah's son. Oh, yes, but 
Jesus' lineage comes. Yes, so that story's a little bit scandalous too. <laughs> Tamar. Yeah, so these, these are, not only are they women, but they're also and foreign women that God brings in. You could do men too, though. Abraham, who's from Ur of the Chaldeans. God calls him out of unbelief into faith. Noah actually was called out of unbelief into faith. The whole world was exceedingly wicked, and God chose Noah. Um, they just keep going down the line. Right? So, uh, all people are included in this. Jesus contrasts himself because it's not that whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And I would, I would say that this is not purely metaphorical. All right? So that's how sometimes people take it. Well, this is all picture language, that Jesus is like bread. Um, he doesn't say that, does he? No. I am, I am the living bread. In the same way he says, take it, this is my body, and this is my blood. He's not, it's not just picture language. And we, I think we over-spiritualize things. Um, maybe if you wanted to take a vision that would explain this, take Isaiah's vision, where um, God gives to Isaiah from, gives him a scroll, and he tells him to eat the scroll. You're like, I mean, it's not, eating, eating, do you eat paper? Or this would have been like, wouldn't have been paper, or like, could have been linen, but it had been parchment, which are animal skins, right? Um, or could have been papyrus, I suppose, right, which is reeds, but you don't, um, you don't eat that. But there it is. You eat God's word, and by eating, he, you know, it's bitter and it's sweet, right? It's a long gospel. It's right there in, the, in that, that vision to Isaiah of him eating, right? And of course, uh, he tells you it's not metaphorical because he goes right to it. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh, right? And so whoever, and we're going to talk about it, eats and drinks my flesh has life, uh, which is fulfilled for you in the receiving of Christ's body and blood in the supper. It, and not in a metaphorical sense. You actually receive Christ's body and blood in the supper. Uh, there's plenty of Christians that deny Jesus' own word on that, um, but we don't. Okay? Now, obviously, does it look like body and blood? No. Is it a mystery? Yes. Um, but that doesn't mean it isn't true or actually what, it's, what he says it is. All right. So uh, the last paragraph that I wrote last week, um, just to explain this, is that the story of Jesus is not presented as a pure historic, a historical event that lies in its own time and place and thus in the past. All right, we talked about this at length back with John chapter 3 because um, there were questions about it. So it's not just a historic event that's just there as like an example or something to learn from. But that event is made present through faith now. Right? So what Jesus is describing here is he's describing your life in the church, and fit by faith. Right. Rather than the giving for the life of the world, rather, the giving of the, for the life of the world lies within the death of Jesus, and that death being the giving of the flesh of the word. All right. So in John 6, uh, he is referring to the Lord's Supper, but, but also in a more broad sense, he's referring to the receiving of his word as, as bread, right? Um, which is the right response when somebody says, well, um, you know, I go to church to be fed. That, that's not, that's a great statement. It's a statement of faith. But fed by what? And very clearly, Jesus says, you're fed by his word. That is by him, right? So if somebody says, well, I went to church and I just wasn't fed, you say, well, what did you hear? Right? And did you hear Jesus' word? And namely, was it Jesus' word 
of forgiveness, life, and salvation? Was he there with his gospel? Right? And if that's what you heard, then you were fed. It's just, what would it be? It'd be your unbelief denying that you received the, the food that Jesus came to give you. Right? Now, it is possible the pastor thought he preached God's word, and he didn't. Right? And in which case, you weren't fed, at which point you tell the pastor, please give me um, what Jesus promised, right? which you're uh, not only entitled to do, but actually, I would say, commanded to do as hearers of God's word, to hold the pastor accountable to do his job. All right? Apart from that flesh, the flesh of Jesus, there is no life. If faith is to be faith, it must grasp that which is given, not merely agree to what is reported. All right? So sometimes people say that faith... I mean, it's true. Some people say faith is not agreeing with what is reported. Faith does include assent that what, it, what Jesus says here actually he said. So you must agree to that, but also not just that it's been recorded, but also that in those words you receive what he gives, right, which is life for the world. Therefore, <clears throat> oh, I skipped the line. If faith is to be faith, it must grasp that which is given, not merely agree to what is reported. Therefore, Receiving the Lord's Supper is partaking of the body and blood of Christ. No problem, right? The very flesh that gives life. Uh, note that here it's not the Pauline use of flesh, um, so that's an important thing to note. Because a lot of times when we say Paul, uh, speak of flesh and spirit, by flesh we mean what Paul says, right? Where it is the sinful nature. Right? Paul uses, it in a very, uses that term flesh in a very particular way. Here, um, never mind Jesus has no sin, um, but that's not what he's referring to. He's referring to, he's, well, he's connecting this idea of receiving the man to receiving the Passover lamb, the flesh to eat. That those are of the same, they're really the same thing. That in, how does the writer of the Hebrews say it? In many and various ways, God spoke to his people of old by the prophets, but now in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, right? He spoke to the prophets in many and various ways, right? So, all the things that we see in the Old Testament are, are figures pointing to Jesus, Jesus, actually giving us Jesus. Whether it's the sacrifices, it's the, 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 the deliverance through the Red Sea, the deliverance by the flood, the <clears throat> giving of the Passover lamb, the, the manna in the wilderness, the looking upon the serpent on the pole and living, the water coming from the rock, the crossing through the, the Jordan River behind the Ark of the Covenant. These are all together assumed into Jesus' life and ministry. They're all actually pointing to that life and ministry for you. All right. So that was kind of a long rant, but an emotional, impassioned speech or something. I don't know how impassioned that sounds. Any questions so far then? So that, I mentioned that we make that move to flesh. What is the flesh? That's the answer. He's connecting the Passover lamb with the bread from heaven. So we move from manna Back to actually back in time to the Passover, which came before. All right, let's keep reading. 51, where did we leave off? All right, we read to 51. All right, let's pick up with 52 then through, what did I say, 58. Who would like to read? Go. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and 
Maybe this aggravates people a little bit, the way that Jesus seems to repeat himself. <laughs> it's like, especially in John's gospel. Um, I, I listened to a sermon yesterday that was talking about John chapter 17, which is part of what um, we, which is the long extended prayer that Jesus prays in the upper room in John's gospel, which we haven't gotten to yet. 15 through 17, I think it is. It's three chapters long. It's a pretty long prayer. Right, we much prefer the Lord's Prayer, right? Because we can memorize that. Uh, try to memorize Jesus' high priestly prayer. And it has this, it has this kind of language where um, it just doesn't, it doesn't follow our Western kind of sensibilities, really our scientific sensibilities. Because we like part one, part two, part three, right? Or rather, we'd probably like it this way. Introduction, which tells us what the next three parts are going to be. Then part one, part two, part three. And then the conclusion, which summarizes everything we just heard. Rather, um, the Hebrew way of thinking, um, which is related actually to the Hebrew uh, concept of time, is it's like this, right? And he, he goes in circles. It sounds like he's going in circles. Like, make up your mind already, right? Um, sometimes. That's especially true with the Psalms, right? It, bounces, it seems like it's bouncing from idea to idea, which it is. So, so you'll say, it, it, maybe it goes something like this. Uh, I'm sinful, I'm in distress. You know, save me from my enemies, but you, O oh Lord, are um, just, and you destroy enemies, you, you, you save me. But I have forgotten you, and, I, and I've transgressed your commandments, but you are forgiving and merciful and kind. But, but then this, and then back to the, so, and you're like, well, can you just make up your mind, right? Um, but our, that's the way of our life anyway. I think, the, I think the Hebrews are actually closer to the way of, of living than, than the Western philosophers, um, because our life is, is cyclical. We have evening and morning is a day, right, according to the Hebrew time. And, and our prayers go that way too, you know, keep me from sin, forgive me from sin, each and every day. We're back and forth between unbelief and faith, between um, sin and forgiveness, between death and judgment and life and salvation. So, um, Jesus seems to be doing the same thing here. It's like, we, we've already talked about this about flesh and um, eating and, and whatnot. So the Jews dispute among themselves, saying, how can this man uh, give us his flesh um, to eat? So we shouldn't underestimate what happened here. They are scandalized by Jesus' words. All right? Um, it's not just, uh, I probably said on the sheet, I wrote this earlier in the week. Uh, no, I didn't say it. it oh, yeah, the scandal... It's, you might think it's an act of cannibalism. That's the thing that scandals them. Um, but it isn't. What Je they recognize what Jesus has said is that he is the man in the wilderness. He's the God of Israel who delivered his people. He's the one who feeds you. Right? So the scandal here um, is not simply that this man gives us his flesh to eat, but rather um, that he is the one that prepares that table for them. All right? So... Uh, and, I, and I give you a psalm to look at, so maybe we can jump to that. Psalm 78. I don't think we did this already. 
can't remember which psalms we've looked at, which ones we haven't. But John especially seems to have psalms in mind. All right, so Psalm 78, 19. They spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? Question. He struck the walk, rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread and provide meat for the people? Right? That was the question that people asked. Can God feed us? Can he give us drink? Right? And they're asking the same question, just like their fathers in the wilderness who doubted that God would provide. Here, they doubt Jesus. They say, can he? Ah, it didn't go back to where we were. Oh, well, it kind of did, I guess. Oops. Where's my arrow? Ah, cursors. I hate cursors. Okay, they're there. They disputed, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? I mean, I think the cannibalism thing actually makes some sense too, right? Doesn't it? That seems like a kind of a strange thing to say. Um, but he is claiming that by saying flesh, again, he's claiming to be the Passover lamb. So then he says, truly, truly, again, that's amen, amen, I say to you, so this is an emphatic statement, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. All right, so they're doubting him, and rather than kind of back up, backtrack a little bit or back up and say, okay, I understand you don't understand, let me just back up a little bit, he does the opposite. He goes, he goes even more, the expression would be hard in the paint <laughs> if you're playing basketball, right? I mean, he's, instead of just saying, well, now you have to eat my flesh, now he actually says, drink my blood, all right? Now that is truly scandalous for them because you have the prohibition, right, given by Moses. Think, especially with the Passover lamb, what did you do with the blood? Yeah, you weren't to eat the animal with the blood, right? Make sure you drain the blood, but then to paint the doorposts and the lentils, um, so the lintel is that top piece, right, above the, okay, the doorpost, um, to paint that with the blood of the lamb, to mark the door, right, so that the angel of death pass, or, I think is how the hymn goes, <laughs> right? So now he's saying you have to do both to have life in you. Now, wait a minute, you can't drink the blood because if you drink the blood, the blood has its life in it, namely, actually, if it's the blood of a sacrifice, what did the sacrifice do? The sacrifice died died to take away sins, right? So its blood, does it have life in it? Well, the life that it gave, it's a life that, it's actually, the blood is dead, right? It came from the animal, and the animal died. Um, of course, we know why this is different with Jesus. You drink his blood because, yes, he died, but he rose. Yeah, he lives, so his blood has life in it. So that, that prohibition from drinking the blood, the Germans love this, right, because, you know, you have blood sausage and there's actually, isn't there soup? There's a pudding? Oh, good night. Um, it's fine for Christians. You can do that. It's like, don't let any part of the animal go to waste. I get it. I get it. <laughs> but uh, the Jews were prohibited in particular, and it was because of Christ. Because um, the things that they were restrained from eating uh, were in order that they would, or, or from sacrificing, were all the things that God gave to point to Jesus. All right, so he... He said lambs and goats because those had particular promises attached to them that are fulfilled in Jesus, right? Like the scapegoat or the lamb or even the dove, right? Because the dove gives its life. The pigeon, uh, pigeon or turtle dove gives its life, but that dove is attached to, to the promise of peace with Noah, right? And it's attached to Jesus' baptism and the Spirit descends upon him. Okay, so all sorts of connections that way. All right, what did I write down? Uh, he introduced the drinking of his blood. The mention of blood next to flesh indicates... 
is to indicate that the living bread is life-giving by way of the shedding of blood, right, which requires a sacrifice. So not just the Passover, but think of all of the tabernacle and temple sacrifices commanded in, in Leviticus. Um, now here's the important statement. Faith unites itself to Christ where he is and where he works, whether you like it or like it not. <laughs> okay? Uh, which we talked about in the sermon last week. There is no work of Christ where there is no flesh given and no blood shed. I know that sounds bold, but that's what Jesus says. Because he's, he's got the negative statement too, right? That's what we're hearing here. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Uh, that's not like maybe or kind of. It's black and white, right? Either you do or you don't. And if you don't, you have no life in you. Um, the exclusivity of Jesus and actually of his apostles, think of Paul, like faith alone saves, that kind of thing, by grace you've been saved, this is not your own doing. All of those exclusive statements, um, they've always been offensive. I think they're particularly offensive today because the, the prevalent, prevalent view of um, religious life or faith is that what you believe is, if it works for you, then it's good for you. Right? But I believe what I believe because it works for me. And we can have a conversation. Maybe we actually have some things in common, like the golden rule, you know, do unto others. And, and then we can have that in common. But we, let's not talk about the things that divide us. Let's talk about the things that unite us, that kind of thing. Right? And then you bump into Jesus who says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I'm the only way. And you're, well, what does that do with all your conversations with those who don't have faith in Christ? It should, what, go ahead. It does make it uncomfortable. Um, I think it also adds a, I don't know, maybe a sense of urgency. Um, I mean, we're, we're, you're not just being, you're not just playfully having a conversation about uh, what you believe. Um, you actually believe it's a matter of life and death. Uh, which doesn't mean that you, that you like throw out patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control and speaking the truth in love, and all the way the Bible's talked about how you relate to your neighbor. Um, that's the way some Christians, even Lutherans, have approached like what we call defending the faith, is that they think they can be jerks about it because it's life and death, so we're just going to be arrogant and, and just attack you and that kind of thing, um, which isn't the way of salvation either. So it does come, it does come by patient kindness, patient teaching, um, a kind disposition, a gentleness, um, love. Um, I say this not to hurt and harm you, but rather I think it, it actually is of supreme importance. And I, you know, as your friend, I think uh, we should really talk about this. Right? And let's listen to what Jesus has to say. So it's especially true with Christians who have departed you know, what we would say from what Jesus has said. The only other mention of Jesus' blood outside this context so this is the only time he talks about the blood or drinking the blood. The only other time he does it, 1934, is that what I wrote? Yeah. And the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Right? Now he's already dead, but then they pierce him with the spear, and the blood and water come out. Um, the flowing of the blood from Jesus' side is death, I wrote, is not only an indication of physical death, which is clear. They wanted to make sure he was dead. That's why they pierced him, right? That's what the Romans say. Because uh, they need to get him off the cross before sunset because it's the Sabbath. Okay? But it's also a depiction of Jesus giving his life, of Jesus' blood for the life of the world. 
and you don't, take, you don't have to take my word for it, um, but you could actually look at John's epistle where he interprets this. So I'll just jump there. It's not on your sheet, um, but it's 1 John 5, right? Here it is, uh, verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood. Ooh, that language sounds familiar. We just saw it, right? Jesus Christ, not by the water only, which would have been like Nicodemus or drinking from, from the fountain, not only by, by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies. Into your hands I commit my spirit, right? He breathed his last, his spirit was at the cross because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree, right? If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Now, John does this whole explanation. There's more about the testimony and, and whatnot because he's the one who was there. He's the one who saw the blood and water come from the side. He's actually the only disciple who did, right? Because it was just John and the women at the cross. The rest had fled. So um, John uniquely then interprets the blood and water uh, both in his, in his gospel and here in his epistle and, uh, and connects it actually all to, to baptism, I would say, as well. Because we say about baptism, along with John, oh, in Revelation, another one of his books, right? These are the ones coming out of the Great Tribulation today, All Saints Day. They have yeah, they've washed themselves in the blood of the Lamb. They made themselves clean and washed themselves in the blood of the Lamb. Right? And you're like, well, how do you wash it in blood? That sounds pretty brutal, uh, terrible. But that's exactly what he's talking about, uh, blood and water. But also to drink. Um, so the scandal of not only the cross, that Jesus would give his life by shedding the blood at the cross for the life of the world. And that's the only way, truth and life, that you're saved. But then that he gives you that flesh and blood from the cross to eat and to drink in a way that had never been done before. So he calls it a new covenant or a new testament, right, in his blood. And that's the reason. It is new. Um, everything in the Old Testament points towards it, but it is first given in Jesus. Okay? Mm. Uh, yeah, so this is what I wrote in the third paragraph on your sheet. There's nothing in the story of the manna given to Israel in the wilderness to prepare them for this mention of drinking the blood. Right? So as much as we've had the Exodus story in the background, now this thing is new which is what I just said. The Torah of Moses for expressly forbade it. I mentioned that, Deuteronomy 12. We are, are to again recall the context of the Passover and the Lamb with the blood you know, marking the door. Jesus is the Lamb of God, and the crucifixion occurs when? At the time of the slaughter of the lambs for the Passover, which would be Saturday, the day he rested. You got something? You're just making sure that you don't miss choir practice. Don't worry. Don't worry. you got 10 minutes. Okay. <laughs> um, we also recall the context of the blood of the covenant of Moses. Remember where they made it, where they sacrificed the animal and it's in two halves and, the, and they, they walk, Moses walks in between the two halves of the sacrifice. And the promise of a new covenant, which comes in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, which Jesus fulfills. And I think those two texts, both the covenant of Moses and the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, are behind the words of institution. The blood, this is my blood of the new covenant. So maybe we should look at Exodus. 
24, verse 3. I'll put it up on the screen. Somebody want to read that? So I just keep talking. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Yeah, nice, right? There you go. All right. So rather than the blood being given to them to drink, what happens with the blood here? Yeah, it's covering the people. I mean, I don't know. The, the whole tabernacle temple scene, you would go, you, they would offer the bull or the sacrifice, whatever animal, and then they would take the blood from the altar because there were like, like channels in the altar and, so that it would, and they would collect it in a basin and then they would, they would spread it on you. It's like it's a pretty bloody affair. He would also, there's blood all over the priests. You know, they prescribe these really beautiful vestments, right? With the fine linen, there's gold, and there's like pomegranates woven into the fabric. And he's got the breastplate, which has all the stones in it and everything. And then, he, then they put blood on him. So takes this beautiful garment, and then it's always, I don't think they like bleached it after that. <laughs> right? But that's always to show that it's, that the garments that, that even God prescribes and like for the high priest, are not sufficient for his sins. All right? So all the ways that we try to even clothe ourselves and clothe our shame and our, and our sin um, are never sufficient. Only the blood of the lamb, the blood of the sacrifice is sufficient. And that's the covenant that God makes with them here. Which is really remarkable then in John's gospel when, um, I think it's John, or maybe it's Matthew and, and Mark Luke, I don't think, maybe it isn't John, where, they, where the people say after... Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. They say, let his blood be on us and on our children. You know? Which connects well with Jesus' own words, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Right? They don't even know that they're actually speaking the truth. You know, Pilate says the same thing. I find no guilt in him. He's declaring the truth. Right? Not just for his own sake, but for our sake, that um, Jesus is without sin. Right? And they're saying they need Jesus' blood upon them. When they say we have no king but Caesar... It's the same sort of thing, right? Um, that, that that is a confession of their unbelief, how deep it goes, how deep our unbelief goes. Like we have no king but Caesar. What? You have only one king, and his name is Jesus. <laughs> so pretty interesting. All right. Uh, and then I said Jeremiah 31, so let's look at that. I don't remember where that comes up in the lectionary, but we hear this one too. What part of the church here? Behold, the days are coming. Someone want to read that? Who hasn't read yet? Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. 
they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will give their iniquity, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Yeah. Isn't that beautiful, the way that, um, that Christ fulfills this promise from Jeremiah? I mean, Jeremiah is a pretty rough prophet, if you read the book. I, I would, rough, maybe that's not the right word. Harsh? <laughs> He's pretty intense, pretty harsh, aggressive even. Um, but in the midst of all of that, there's this wonderful promise uh, of the Lord being, not only being their God, but they being his people. Um, and they will all, note in verse uh, 34 how they will all know him immediately, right? Rather than neighbor telling neighbor, it'll actually be the Lord speaking directly to his people, which he does to us now through his word, right? And even when I speak to you as, as like, say, pastor, it's not the words, it's not my words that I speak. Hopefully it's the Lord's word, right? Um, by, his, by his giving. So, and then that last statement, which is clearly for, fulfilled in Jesus, right? Because he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, John 1, 29. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Right? And that's an eternal forgiveness. It's not just a, a temporal one like the sacrifices that they, that they make. So, and note, again, at the beginning, Jeremiah calls it a new covenant, not like the one that Moses did. So I think um, those are in the background when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. Uh, and we do well. Hmm, how did I say it? I think I said this in our faculty devotion this week for the school staff. Um, the New Testament is the, the authorized interpretation of the Old Testament, right? If you want to understand the scriptures, which means the Old Testament, according to Jesus, the scriptures are the Old Testament. To understand them, listen to Jesus and his apostles, right? And they explain it to you. The purpose of the New Testament is to understand the Old Testament and the way that the Old Testament delivers Christ to you, namely. Okay? Um, go back to the text. So we're jumping around. I'm doing it on the screen. If you've got your Bible, you can do it there. John 6.51. Note what he says there. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Is it 6.51? No, I didn't write down the right thing. Uh, where is it that I meant to write down? It's not 6.51. It would be... Oh, I wrote down the wrong verse. How far did we read? Where's the Son of Man? Do you see Son of Man here? 53. Okay, there it is. All right, so a typo on your sheet. Note the variation in, six, with, in 653 from 651. All right, so I said that he seems to repeat himself, but he, you pay attention to when he makes a change. Here he adds in 53, uh, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, Son of Man is a big title. And... I don't remember when we talked about it. it was, Son of Man, I think, came up in chapter 1. So um, if you want the history of that term or where Jesus pulls that term from, um, namely look at Daniel chapter 7, I believe, for that title, the Son of Man. Um, I mean, is it referring to Jesus' humanity? Yes, it is, um, but it's a messianic title. It's a, it's a title of the promise of the Messiah and actually of the Messiah coming on the last day. All right, so that's the text with the Ancient of Days upon his throne, which I always imagine this guy with his big flowing white beard. <laughs> um, but anyway. Um, note also, um, grammatically, grammar is important here. I say to you, unless you eat 
present tense, the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, present tense, you have no life in you. So um, this is a regular ongoing activity of the faithful Christian, is to regularly receive and eat, um, not just in the Lord's Supper, but I would say in his word too. All right, the life, giving on the, la- the life given on the last day, today's All Saints Day, lies already now for you in the sacrifice of Jesus and the life which the cross wins, and you receive it now. The distinction, since we're on All Saints Day, it's worth mentioning, the distinction between the feast that, that you receive here at, at Christ's altar, his body and blood for your forgiveness, and what, what the saints who in bright array, you know, are on the last day already, who are already in the resurrection, um, from their perspective, not from ours, uh, what they receive around the altar with saints and angels and the whole host of heaven, the only distinction is what we see, not what we receive. Okay? It's the same body and blood upon the altar here that, that we receive on, in eternity from Christ. Right? It's the same marriage feast of the Lamb and his kingdom. Um, I'm not a big fan of this language that was introduced back in the 70s that we just kind of, this happens, right? Somebody says something and everybody thinks, oh, that sounds great, and then we just use it all the time and never stop to say, wait a minute, what do we mean by that term? Um, foretaste of the feast to come. Because, I mean, what is a foretaste? What is it? I mean, it sounds kind of like a sample or an appetizer. You're like, is it? Is it Christ's body and blood? If it is his body and blood, then it's not a foretaste. It is a taste, right? It is what he says it is. Not just like an appetizer or a sampler. This was an unfortunate trend that happened is that we focused a lot on the not yet, what is to come, right? Like, heaven is my home, I'm but a stranger here. So, lamenting our current existence, and we miss the fact that Jesus, the same Jesus who is with the saints in bright array on the last day is with us here now, right? And not in some kind of, like, pale, you know, um, or, what do you want to say, shadow kind of form. It's the same Jesus, right? It's, the problem isn't Jesus, the problem is our senses, <laughs> and also our reason and what we think of it. Um, so actually, when you, uh, as baptized Christians, you've already died and risen with Christ. That's what Paul says. Which means you're already in eternity. But we always talk about, oh, well, when, I, when I'm there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, you're like, but you're already there. And you're like, well, then what's the problem? <laughs> right? Well, the problem is, is that we don't actually believe what Jesus says about our life now that we've already died and rise, been raised with Christ, even now. Yes, we'll die and we'll be buried, but that's, it's not even a death. He calls it a sleep. Right? So we're always thinking about the future rather than just living in the moment that Jesus gives us now to re- rejoice and, and, and to sing with saints and angels and the whole host of heaven. Today the choir is going to help us sing, which will be beautiful, I think. They've been practicing. Um, you know, and one of the things that I would... Okay, I'll just say it. That I'd love to see at some point would be really beautiful. Is we had some angels, right, uh, depicted here, maybe statues or painting or something like that. We're saints too. Why not, right? We have Jesus, which is great because okay, here's the confession that Christ is truly present here for us, very clearly. But but we also don't want to forget that it's also all who are with Christ are with us here. So um, one theologian said, when you go to the Lord's Supper, you go to your death. When you go to your death, you go to the Lord's Supper. I'll just let that hang for a minute so you can think about it. When you go to your death, you go to the Lord's Supper. When you go to the Lord's Supper, you go to your death. It's the same thing. But that also means that when you go to the Lord's Supper, you go and you dwell with saints and angels and the whole host of heaven, right? Which is what we confess in the Sanctus. 
Um, that also means that they come to you in the supper too, right? Um, which I think is a really comforting, it's a comforting word for me. I, mean, I just think about, you know, my grandparents who died in the Lord, you know, and that, and that they, whether they actually believed what the Lord's Supper was, because I didn't have all Lutheran or, or faithful, I would say completely faithful Christians. Actually, I don't even know what a completely faithful Christian is, apart from the one who's died and rise with Christ. But, um, uh, you know, that they dwell with, with, with me at the altar, right? Eating and drinking the same feast. So, again, that's right there in that present tense kind of language. Who eats and drinks, not just did eat and drink, or will eat and drink, but does now, if that follows. All right, and then this next part, um, you know, won't bother you as Lutherans, but it bothers a lot of people when it comes to this. Oh, we don't want to forget verse 54, I will raise him up on the last day. So, I mean, we have a cliche almost that we say, I'll say it in the sermon, I'm sure at least twice, (laughs) um, that we receive from Christ forgiveness, life, and salvation, or eternal salvation, to all those who believe this, as the words and promises of God declare, right? That's where we got it. It's in the catechism. More than once in the catechism, we put those three things together. Forgiveness, life, and salvation. For where there is forgiveness, there is also life and salvation, right? That's from Luther. But you have it here, right from Jesus, right? The blood is shed. The blood gives forgiveness of sins. Whoever eats and drinks of this receives the gifts that it gives, namely forgiveness. And where there is forgiveness, they have eternal life. And where there is eternal life, there is salvation. That is, they'll raise him up on the last day, right in verse 54. Not a problem, right? This is why forgiveness of sins is not some kind of like nice thing that we do, you know, to begin the service and then we move on from forgiveness. No, the whole service is about Jesus forgiving you, start to finish, over and over. Actually, he keeps doing it. He keeps saying, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. That's like 40, well, depends on how long the sermon is. Could be 40 minutes, maybe, hopefully, it's probably a little less than that, 35 minutes or something, um, into the service before you, you hear that again, but you had already confessed and heard the word of forgiveness at the beginning. Why do we keep hearing forgiveness over and over? Because where there is forgiveness, there is life and salvation. All right? All right. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Um, I did mention this on the sheet, but it's worth noting because he's now added a new word, aletheia, in Greek. It's true food and true drink. All right, he's not saying that the food that you eat that isn't his body and blood isn't actually food. It is food, right? But what does he mean by true food or true drink? What do you think? Not diluted, okay, I like that. I don't know if that's exactly what he's getting at, though. Well, he says he is the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. Right? And this is, he's not saying something like that, that famous expression that, again, Lutheran picked up from the Reformed, and then we never stop to think about why we keep saying this. Right? The real presence of Jesus in the Lord's Supper. You ever heard that? You know, that we all believe in the real presence. Well, what does that mean? What's the distinction between the presence of Jesus in the supper and the real presence of Jesus in the supper? Can you make a distinction? Have you ever tried to explain what that term means? No, we just use it, and then we're like, oh, I don't even know what, I don't even know what it means. Because for the Reformed, they say real presence, but they mean spiritual presence, that you don't actually receive his body and blood, but you receive him really, but really in heaven, 
and, and only in a, in a metaf not metaphorical, a metaphysical kind of way. Or it's not his actual body, it is his actual body and blood, but it's not received actually in your mouth. It's confusing, right? So they say real presence, but they don't even mean the same thing as what you mean. So we say the true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's in the, the blessing, the dismissal, right? At the table. What do we mean by true? It's that it, it gives the truth. It gives the truth. It's not just actually it is body and blood. That's true, but it's giving you Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. That's what, I think that's what he means here, but um, I'm open to suggestions. I say the 56 and 57 go together. So maybe 57 is the interpretation of 56. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Right? So now we're back to the Father sends the Son. The Son does the Father's bidding. He expresses the will of the Father. Because he lives because of the Father has given him life. He's begotten of the Father from eternity. Therefore, whoever receives him and feeds upon him receives his life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Um, it sounds like highfalutin language, but it actually is actually, it, it's, it's of supreme importance, right? Because apart from Jesus, what did he say back in 53? Apart, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So even the thing that you call life, right, you know, this life, is not the, it's not the life that actually God wants for you, really, or that he came to give you in his Son. It's not that it isn't a blessing to you. But uh, uh, how does the psalmist say it? The span of your life is 50 or 60, no, 60 or 70 or by reason of strength, 80 years. Um, they're here today and they're gone tomorrow, basically, is the summary. <laughs> right? And, and you all, and some of you are older, so you know this. It's like, where did all the time go? That's what it starts to feel like, right? Like, what did I do with my life? How did I get, you know? And maybe you can, God gives you some things to look at, Right? Yeah, I mean, like your children, grandchildren, you can see that, uh, if God blessed you with that. Um, but think about like somebody who like, starts a business and then the business fails. And then they look back at their life and say, I spent 40 or 50 years on it, and then I ended up, you know, and then we went bankrupt. They're like, well, what good was any of that, right? Is that living? See, how we try to like, actually attach value then to the things that we do, to say, that's living, right? Is like having an empire, building a kingdom, or um, having... I don't know, nine children or something. It's so valuable. <laughs> you're still trying to figure out what you're going to do with your life. I love it. Well, you're here, and this is what Jesus would have you do with your life, is to receive life from him. Yeah. No matter what, what happens in your life, quote-unquote, um, you have life in Jesus by his name. That's your gift. That's his gift to you as a baptized child of God. So then, then no, matter, no matter what your life looks like, your eternal life, your 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 value is attached to you by him. Yeah. yeah. So you can say, so you really don't have to worry about what happened so much. You know, I, like, I always dwell on the past. Other people are always dwelling on the future of what's going to happen. Um, Jesus says, you're alive <laughs> in me, right? We're actually alive, alive also, right, in the body. Enjoy it, right? Rejoice in that. Um, so I don't think it refers to just being flesh and blood but also the effect and the result of the eating and drinking. This is the first time that John uh, renders his version of the Old Testament covenant formula, which we heard back in Exodus. I shall be their God, and they shall be my people. Here Jesus is saying it, right? He's saying, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. 
As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. See how Jesus is taking that formula, I will be their God and they will be my people, and he's actually describing how that will come, come up, how that comes about in him. It comes through union with Christ, right? Or as we call it, com, communion, right? <laughs> I don't like a commune, but you know, communion, we say communion. Uh, communion can be understood in two ways. One, it's Christ joining himself to body and blood, body and blood to bread and wine. So there's a union of his body and blood to the bread and wine. Um, but it can also be described as Jesus' union with you, which is what he's talking about here. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood is, with, is in me and I am in, in him, right? You've been joined to Christ. The Lord's Supper is an expression of that, of that um, life-giving relationship that you have with Jesus. Uh, by the way, that's also why only those who are baptized receive the Lord's Supper. Because baptism is when that union is made, right? When, he calls, when you're joined to Christ in baptism, you're made his child, you share with him and everything that is his. Then the Lord's Supper is the expression of your baptismal faith, the faith that's given in baptism, or the life that's given in baptism, rather. Uh-huh. Hmm. The lang this language will return again in John 15, where Jesus describes himself as the vine and we are the branches, right? It's that same kind of, you're joined, you're actually grafted onto the vine, and then you receive your life blood from the vine. Yes, the branches receive their life blood from the vine. I always think of the vine as the thing that's connected to the branch. But in Jesus' language, the vine is like the, the main trunk, and we are the branches off the main trunk. All right. Uh, verse 58. Let's talk about that quick. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died, which we had earlier, right? The manna, they ate the manna and they died. It didn't give them eternal life. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. I should have given you verse 59 too, right? Because we already talked about this. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. I like how John kind of holds that back until after he, the whole long exposition and then, oh yeah, by the way, this was all happening in the synagogue at Capernaum. But I, I told you that a couple weeks ago, so you already knew that. So this, this union with Christ is really... Um, it's not something that, that you do. It's something that Christ gives to you. It's a gift to you, that he joins himself to you, um, despite you even, right? Um, it's, if you want to think in terms of, of a bargain what kind of, or a covenant or a agreement, what kind of agreement is it? Is it, is it unilateral or is it, um, is it a fair bargain, you know? Are you equal partners with Jesus in your salvation project, <laughs> if you want to put it that way? The answer is no, yeah. Um, what do you have to give to Jesus? Okay, well, maybe we'll back it up. What does he have to give to you? What has he told you? Life and salvation, eternal life. We'll raise him up on the last day. Forgiveness is in there too because of the sacrifice of the, the lamb that gives its life for the sins of the world, okay? So that's what he has to give to you. What do you have to give to him? Uh-oh, mom and dad disagree. No, mom and son, sorry. Mom and son disagree. Obedience, oh, oops, yeah. What do you have to give to him that he, um, for that exchange when he joins himself to give you forgiveness, life, and salvation? Isn't that hard? You have your sin. He'll take your sin from you. That's good. Um, death, right, because he gives you life, death, and then hell, right, or captivity to the devil. 
He takes those from you and exchange gives you forgiveness, life, and salvation, right? It isn't to say that there isn't obedience, or, which is a fruit of faith, right? But that's all consequential, if you like. It's a consequence of his work of saving you, where he takes everything. Um, you know, <laughs> this is why the expression, like, I give my heart to Jesus is so funny. It's like, what does he want with that thing? You know, as one professor said, here, you can have it. I mean, it's kind of black and, you know, terrible, but it's yours, right? It's not really a fair deal at all, right? Um, which is, that's what grace is, by the way. It's not that he gives you what you deserve. He gives you exactly what you don't deserve. It's all gift to you, right? And it's right here. And it's really, I think it's beautifully expressed by Jesus. And then again, that's in that mutual joining to you, both in baptism, John 3, but now um, in his body and blood, in the supper in John 6. There's this transfusion, if you like, right? Yeah, which comes through eating and drinking. So... What comes next? Uh, oh, then the disciples have a problem with what he said. So that's where we'll go next time, all right? And there's going to be more grumbling because we like it when they grumble. Grumble, grumble, grumble. All right. Uh, let's close with prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed your son Jesus to us, namely that he, is, uh, that he gives his flesh for us to eat and his blood to drink, that we would have in him our forgiveness, um, our life, and our eternal salvation. Uh, we ask that you would strengthen our faith, that we would always trust um, that this is uh, true, a true food for us and true drink. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We thank you for listening to this podcast from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church Sermon Center in Random Lake, Wisconsin. If this podcast is of benefit to you, please consider supporting the work of St. John by visiting stjohnrandomlake.org, that's stjohnrandomlake.org, slash support, and give today.